Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, you may, you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation in the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You pray with me one more time. Father, we're before your word. We need our hearts, Father, to do with our lips just sung a couple of minutes ago. To crown your son with many crowns. We need our hearts, Father, to have its eyes wide open to the glory that is seen in the text. We need the ears of our hearts, Father, open to hear of the wonder that is here. We need the taste buds of our heart, Father, to taste and see that your word is good. It's like honey to our taste buds. For that to happen, Father, I pray that you would aid us with your precious Holy Spirit. Pray that your word would do work this morning, that your word would do work in every heart in this room, and that, Father, you would be magnified as a result. Give us, Father, the gift of self-forgiveness for this time. Help us to not focus on what's coming next or what we're going to do later on today, but help us, Father, wholeheartedly zoom in onto your text to be addressed by our King. Father, call, strengthen, encourage ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would be hard-pressed to count how many times I have sat in a church service, how many times I've sat in sermons, how many sermons after years and years and years and years and years of sitting in the church. Having grown up in the church, I've seen the 10 o'clock hour move into the 11 o'clock hour, and the 11 o'clock hour move into the 12 o'clock hour, and the 12 o'clock hour move into the 1 o'clock hour. I've seen over the years that one thing that I have to be watchful for is when the preacher says, finally. Many of a novice sermon listener, many of them, have been duped into thinking that when finally comes out of the mouth of the preacher, it means the same word as finally does in the dictionary. 
a seasoned sermon listeners, those who've been around the block for a little bit, know that we have to keep a keen eye on the preacher. Because when he says, finally, we've been in enough sermons to know that that's just his first closing. That somehow morphs into his second closing. That somehow goes into his third closing. Paul, to the Philippians, was this type of preacher. In chapter 3, Paul says, finally. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, finally. Now, wait a minute, Paul. How many finalies do you got, brother? I think the reason why the word finally perks up in our ears is because we can be thinking of a bunch of different things. Finally, he's done preaching. Finally, it's time to get some food. Finally, church is over. There's another reason, a more important reason, why we should pay close attention to any time we see this word finally come up in the text. Sometimes the word finally singles one last important point that we should not treat like the end credits of a movie. The end of the matter, how many of y'all know, is no less important than the beginning of the matter or even the middle of a particular matter. In fact, sometimes the last words that a person speaks and utters are some of the most important words that he or she is talking about. If I had to hang a banner over this section of scripture, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, as we read here in the form of a title, it would say this, a final word stand. Did you hear how many times the word stand was mentioned in the text? Look at it one more time. I closed my Bible by mistake. Verse number 11, stand. Verse number 13, twice, stand. Stand. Verse number 14, stand. This should cause a question to rise up in our minds. What happened to all the walking that we've been talking about? Since September, we have been moving from the first half of Ephesians, chapter 1 through 3, into Ephesians 4 through 6, and the main metaphor that we've been using is this imagery of walking, which points to how we live our day-to-day -day lives. In light of what the triune God has done on our behalf in our salvation, we've been talking about how we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of this gospel call. We've seen so far that we're to walk in unity and we're to walk in holiness, we're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, and we're to walk in wisdom. But here, as Paul's final, final word, he changes the metaphor from walk, which he uses five times in two chapters, to stand, which he uses five times in 11 verses. The question this morning is why is there such an emphasis on standing as Paul's final word to the Ephesians and to us? Our text this morning starts to unpack for us why Paul's final word to the Ephesians and to us is to stand. 
What we have in front of us is a great example of a tightly knit reasoning, a tightly knit argument that with the Lord's help will speak powerfully to us this morning. So let's follow where the text leads us. I want you to consider four words. What, how, purpose, and reason. Four words. What, how, purpose, and reason. Start with the first one, what? What is Paul telling us to do here? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10, if you look at it again, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Last year, the Pew Research Center did a survey on what traits our society, our American society, valued most in men and women. wonder if you can guess what those were. Kindness was the overall trait for women. And strength was listed as more of a value trait for men. There's something about strength that's attractive and lively, right? Whether if it's the physical strength of a running back who is carrying three defenders plus the ball with him into the end zone, all the way over to the moral strength that's exhibited in somebody like maybe a Rosa Parks who refused to get up from her seat, It seems like it's just human nature to gravitate towards strength. Paul's call to both men and women, by the way, might resonate with us as well because we recall Joshua's call in the Old Testament to be strong and to be courageous as he's leading Israel now into the promised land. We hear this call to be strong and it's motivating. It's inspiring, especially if we find ourselves in a very difficult situation. That requires strength. Be strong. Be courageous. We say in our soul, that's right. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to muster up all the strength that I need to do to handle this situation. But then, you know what we do next? When we hear this call to be strong, you know what we do? We feel, we turn right around, and we look for the strength or the source of that strength in ourselves. We look inward for the strength to be strong. We act like that we are our own source of strength. I'm glad that our brother Paul didn't stop with just the words, be strong. He says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in yourself? No. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But we have to be careful. Even in being strong in the Lord, we must recognize that it is not a do-it-yourself project. I think a more helpful way to unpack what Paul means here about being strong is saying it like this. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might. This captures reality because it communicates that we need to be strengthened like our cars need to be filled with gas. I mean, I know that our cars don't fill themselves up with gas from a supply within themselves. Our cars are dependent on an outside source to be filled. And in like manner, we don't look to be strong from some source that we find within ourselves. We must be strengthened from outside of ourselves. In other words, we must go to the gas pump 
Paul has given us some real good news here. First, he's setting the record straight by proclaiming our dependence. We need to, we, we need to, to be strong, right? But we need to be strengthened from an outside source. And second, he's telling us, this is good news right here, He's telling us where the greatest source of strength in all of the universe is to be found. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the power or in the strength of his might. The Lord and his inherent mighty strength is the source of the believer's strength. Oh, how Ephesians stitches into our soul, the much-needed picture of our omnipotent triune God. Paul, in chapter 1, prayed. He prayed that believers would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power. You know what he does? He puts forth Christ as an example of this mighty power. Remember, we saw this in chapter 1. He prayed that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Anybody in here believe this morning? He's asking the Lord to help you see this power that's towards you. And if you're wondering, well, what type of power is this? How strong is this? He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all authority and rule, above all power and dominion, and above every name that's going to be named, not only in this age, but the age to come. That's power. That's power to be able to raise Christ up and seat him above all names in this age and in the, in the age to come. And this is the power that's working towards us who believe. Paul wants the church to know that. He goes on to say in that prayer that not only has the Lord done, not only has God done this, but he's given to the church Christ the head over all things. It's good to be in the church, you all. The church's Lord is the one who is head over all things and whose strength is unparalleled and unmatched and undisputed. And it's his strength that supplies your strength. I think we're going to be all right. To be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might is to increasingly depend on the one that you are so united to that it is said of the Christian that you are actually in Christ. You are so united to him. You're in Christ. We derive strength not from ourselves. We derive strength from him whose source of strength is his own inherent mighty power. Christ doesn't go to anyone to be filled with strength. He gives it out. That's good news. Question is how? How are we to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, I wish I was in the room when young David in the Old Testament informed King Solomon that he was going to handle his giant problem. You remember that story, right? You know how it goes. Goliath and the Philistines set themselves against the ranks of Israel. When Saul and Israel heard the defiant words coming out of this Philistine's mouth, they were anything but strengthened. 
The scriptures tell us that they were actually dismayed and greatly afraid. The king was dismayed and greatly afraid of this Philistine. Then here comes young David on the scene. And what I love about young David is that he has a, he has a different set of ears. And the same words that shook King Saul did something different in the heart of David. He wasn't afraid of this Philistine for his faith was in the one who's already delivered him from the lion and the bear. This disrespectful Philistine would be no different. Saul was reluctant at first, but then he jumps on the opportunity, seemingly encouraged by this audacious faith that this young David is speaking about. But before he sent David out to fight Saul, do you remember what he did? Before he sent David to, out to fight for Saul, uh, fight against the Philistine, Saul gave David his armor to wear. But upon trying this armor on, David wasn't used to it, and he took it off. I want you to notice the irony here. Here we see the rejected king of Israel, Saul, putting his armor on the newly chosen and anointed king, David, who does what a king is supposed to do which is namely fight on the behalf of his people, save them through the defeat of their enemies, and set the record straight and set things right. Israel's human king was supposed to do that because Israel's human king was an embodiment of the divine king who does the same thing. God, the divine king, strapped on his armor, saved his people from their enemies, and he ultimately makes things right. One person put it like this. It's impossible to talk about God as king without talking about God as warrior. Moses said it like this after the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. That sounds familiar. The Lord is my strength in my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. In other words, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. In fact, as you read the entirety of the Old Testament, it becomes quite clear that Israel's only hope for existence is tied to the Lord, their divine warrior, who fights on their behalf as the king. If Israel experienced any victory of any sort, it was because God fought and won on their behalf. In other words, God is the one that got the W's for Israel. I mean, y'all know he's the one that gets the W's for us. Let's look at an Old Testament text for a second that shows the Lord as a warrior. Why don't you turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. As you're turning there, let me tell you about the context. So we won't be reading this whole chapter. I invite you to read the whole chapter later on today or this week. The context of Isaiah 59 is the Lord Yahweh as the warrior king. And this warrior king that we see in this text, he does a couple of things. He judges the wicked and he saves those who repents. 
Isaiah 59, verse number 15, captures the gist of what's been spoken about for the first 14 verses of this chapter. Look at verse number 15. There was no justice even among the Lord's people, verse 15 tells us. Verse 15 says, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. There was no justice. There was no justice. Next verse tells us that when the Lord sought for someone to bring about justice, he didn't even find a person to bring about justice. So what did the Lord King do? Look at verse number 16 and 17. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There's no one to intercede on behalf of those who are experiencing injustice. So what does he do? Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Sound familiar? He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The Lord himself gets it done, in other words. Right? The Lord himself sets the matter straight. The Lord himself straps on his armor and he brings about righteousness through judgment. Look at verse number 18 and 19. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. And it's going to be such, such judgment. It's going to be so worldwide and glorious. Verse number 19 says... So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream when the wind of the Lord, which the wind of the Lord drives. This isn't all that the divine warrior does. Yes, he judges sin, but then mercifully, graciously, the divine warrior also redeems and saves and sets people free. Look at verse number 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This divine warrior suits up to set all things right and to save those who repent. Now, does that sound familiar to you this morning? Does that ring a bell in your ear at all this morning? Thank you. Amen. <laughs> God takes the initiative to save in Christ, right? I love how one person broke it down for me like this. He said, in Jesus as the true king that David pointed to, God takes matters into his own hand to set things right like we saw in Isaiah 59. Jesus enters the fray as the perfect king, strapped not with, the, not with Saul's armor, but the Lord's armor of righteousness and salvation to set things right to bring salvation and justice and to do what only he could do. This is the arm of God initiating redemption. It's the fullness of time. Neither Herod 
nor or the religious community were champions of justice, so the Son of God stepped down into darkness to save and set things right as he put on the name Jesus, which contains the verbal root that means to save. With John the Baptist, Jesus called for sinners to repent that they might be ready for the looming fiery judgment, for only the repentant would be redeemed. And what's more, King Jesus saves through healing, casting out demons, advocating for the rights of the marginalized and the oppressed, and ultimately through providing forgiveness of sins by dying on the cross and through conquering the power of death and the power of evil in his resurrection. Friend, if you are in here this morning and you are not a Christian, that means that you are not repentant and you have not turned from your sin. It means that you are not trusting in Christ, the divine warrior who has died for you, died to save you from your sin. This Christ, as we have just heard, did not stay dead though, right? In his resurrection, he's been declared to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And guess what he's promised to do? He's promised to come back. And when he comes back, come y'all know it will not be to lay his life down. It will be to lay his justice down on all those who are guilty of the greatest injustice of not believing in his name. Friend, that describes you today. Trust in him. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you have any questions about that, please come talk to us at the, the, front of the front of the church at the end of service or talk to the person that brought you. Don't leave here today without trusting in Christ, your divine warrior. Brothers and sisters who are in Christ this morning, who are Christians, do you see what this means for us? Jesus, our divine warrior, conquered the greatest enemies of our soul. Sin is conquered. Death is conquered. Satan is conquered. Colossians, in fact, tells us that God in Christ conquered so ultimately that he, dis that he disarmed our ultimate enemy and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross of Christ. I wish I would have seen that. The cross of Christ triumphing over all of our enemies, and they have been put not to shame behind some closed doors, but open shame. It's good news for me this morning. You see what Ephesians 6 tells us. While it was God alone in Isaiah 59 who strapped on this armor to bring about righteousness and salvation, Ephesians 6 tells us that in Christ we can take on the very same armor of God himself. That's good news, Jubilee. We can participate in his triumph. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? We do this by strapping on the very armor of God. He's given it to us to wear. What's the purpose? We're told to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might by putting on the whole armor of God. Why? Why? For what reason? Verse 11, look at the second part of verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, sometimes 
we may not realize how big something is, right? I want you to take a million and take a billion for an example. We obviously know that a million is much bigger than a billion, but how much bigger? How much bigger? Does it, does it make a difference if you have a million or something versus a billion or something? Well, think about it in time. One million seconds ago was about 11 days ago, according to Google. Okay. One million seconds ago is about 11 days ago. One billion seconds ago. If one million was 11 days ago, maybe one billion would be two months ago, maybe. Three months ago. 11 billion seconds ago, according to Google, right? 11 billion seconds ago was the year that the Princess Bride came out. 1987 was 11 billion seconds ago. That's a big change from, 11 million, from a million to a billion. A billion is much bigger than a million. I had that in mind as I'm thinking about what Paul is helping us to do in the letter of Ephesians. He's helping us to come to the realization that we are actually part of something much bigger than what we realize. We come to find out that this stage that we're on as humans is a drama of redemption, and this stage is like a billion versus a million. It's much bigger than what we think it is. It's a cosmic stage. And this cosmic, cosmic stage includes not only earth, but also heaven. And there's actors on this stage. And these actors are not just human, but also superhuman. Verse number 11 tells us of one such character that we better not treat as an extra on this stage. The devil is no background character that's just simply there to fill a hole. There are two ditches that we typically fall into concerning the devil. One ditch is acting like the devil is in everything from the details to everyday bothers of this life. We overestimate his influence. Your Wi-Fi goes down and you look at your modem and you say, get thee behind me, Satan. The other ditch that we fall into is acting like the devil doesn't even exist. That's the secular mentality that we breathe in every single day. In fact, sometimes it actually, actually kind of feels weird to talk about the devil in 2019. The scriptures won't allow us to ignore this character on the stage, though. The scriptures also keep us from falling into the ditch, either one of them. I want you to consider a few points about the devil. The devil, the scripture tells us, is a fallen angel who sinned against God. And now he is wholly bent on working evil in the world. We get a glimpse into his nature by his personal name, Satan, which means adversaries. According to the scriptures, the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. He's known as a liar and the father of lies. Scriptures tell us that he is the one who has sinned from the beginning. And his pure passion is to tempt others to follow in sin. 
He seemingly was so successful that at least one-third of the angels follow him into rebellion and now make up what we call demons. He's known as the ruler of this world, the head of the demons, and rightly as the evil one. What we learn in Ephesians, as we've been spending time in here, is that he is the prince of the power of the air, and he's at work right now in those who are not Christians. Doesn't mean that they're demon or devil possessed, but he is influencing those who are not in Christ. Ephesians tells us that he is a schemer. Now, how many of y'all know being a schemer is not a positive trait? Nobody wants to be known as a schemer. Behind this word is where we get the word method. He has all types of methods and strategies and tactics that are crafty and that are cunning. You don't see the devil coming up the street with a red suit on and a pitchfork and a long tail. His intent is is to deceive. His objection is your hurt and your destruction. His aim is your spiritual ineffectiveness. His design is your destruction. His hope is to use you for the fall of many other people. I mean, y'all know that it would be to our detriment if we go about our merry way as if he and those under him did not exist. The good news, though, that we find in Ephesians is that, through, is that though this world with devils filled, we who are in Christ have nothing to fear. I thought I'd get a good amen on that one. I was hoping for a good one on that one. It bears constant repetition, right? When Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And these hosts of captives are the devil and his army. Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives. When Christ was raised from the dead, as we already said, I'll say it again, it bears repetition. He seated him at his own, God seated him at his own right hand of authority far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. If Ephesians reminds us of this cosmic stage that we occupy, and if Ephesians reminds us of these superhuman characters that are on this, co- on this cosmic stage, characters that are both good and evil, how many of y'all know that Ephesians emphatically points us to the cosmic Christ? Emphatically points us to the cosmic Christ. The one who is the divine warrior and the one who reigns over all. It's been said like this, no conceivable being, none of them, From the devil down, no conceivable being can ever even come close to matching Christ in power or authority. Upon raising Christ from the dead, Almighty God exalted him to a position of unrivaled authority from where he exercises his leadership. The Christian, those in Christ, have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear at all. We aren't to overestimate the devil. We aren't to underestimate him. We aren't to fear him or to ignore him. What we're called to do is to stand against his schemes. I want you to notice the logic of the text. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I take that to mean no armor equals no ability to stand. Does that make sense? Is that the the logic of the text? No armor 
no ability to stand. That helps me to understand that I am not going to be able to stand against the methods of the devil without being strapped up in the armor of God, the whole armor of God. I think that's the logic of the text. Reason. What's the reason why we need the armor of God to stand against the devil? Why do we need the armor? Look at verse number 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why do we need supernatural armor to stand? This verse tells us because we are in a supernatural fight. We need supernatural armor because we are in a supernatural fight. If I were to take the body of, if I were to take the body of Christ worldwide alone, it would deeply sadden you to just get a glimpse at the level of fighting that's going on in the body of Christ alone. Woke church versus gospel only church. Traditional marriage proponents versus LBGTQ affirming proponents. Pro-life advocates versus pro-choice advocates. Republican versus Democrat. Husband versus wife. My friends versus your friends. Sister versus sister. Pastors versus the congregation. The battles that are raging hot in the body of Christ are on the wrong battleground. The U.S. General's famous rebuke seems appropriate here. It's the wrong war at the wrong place at the wrong time and with the wrong enemy. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not our fight. We are wasting precious energy thinking that the real battle is someone that we can see. The fighting that's going on in your marriage has a bigger enemy than your spouse. Your argument that you're having right now with the friend that's in Christ, it has a greater foe behind it. The battle lines that are drawn up between brother and brother over 280 characters has a larger adversary fueling it. If you find yourself fighting against flesh and blood, you better pause for a second. And you better wake up and realize where the real battle is and who the real enemy is. You better lay your weapons down against your brother and sister in Christ and strap on the armor of God for the real adversary. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. I want you to peep out the devil's alliance that's arrayed against God and his people. Now, Paul is not interested at all in creating an exhaustive list of the spiritual forces of evil. That's not his point here. He wants to bring to our awareness of how big this cosmic stage is. He wants to direct our attention to where the battle that we find ourselves in. He wants to paint this picture of spiritual, of supernatural spiritual forces that hold sway over this present darkness. Paul isn't interested in getting into the minutia of details concerning these, these spiritual forces that occupy the spiritual realm and that exerts influence on the earth. He has two things in mind. He wants to explain where Christ stands in relation to these spiritual forces of evil, far above. He also wants to explain where the church stands in relation to these spiritual forces, far above in Christ, far above. 
So finally, I've been waiting to say that, see if y'all gonna get it. <laughs> finally, my one application point happens to be walking on the hollow ground of another man's sermon. So I want you to look at verse 13. Pastor John will pick this up next Sunday. It's my one application point, verse 13. If all of this is true, if our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against supernatural forces of evil, with Satan at the helm, if we're not able to stand in and of ourselves, if strength is not found in us, if we have no inherent mighty strength to rely on, verse 13, application point, that's all true, then take up the whole armor of God. Take it up. Take up the whole armor of God that you may stand, you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all jubilee to stand firm. Take up the whole armor. Realize that you are in the middle of a spiritual war and there is no option of sitting this one out on the sideline. You're in it whether you know it or not. My man Tozer said it best. He says, sometimes we think that the world is not a battleground, but a playground. That we're not here to fight, but we're here to frolic. In Jubilee this morning, let's not be out in this world with our play clothes on, thinking that it's a playground. Let's be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let us put on the whole armor of God, assured that the victory has already been won by our Lord. We just have to stand engaged in the battle while we wait for the day of final victory when the Lord returns. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word will go down deep into our hearts and bear much fruit. Help us to see your strength that you have demonstrated in Christ. Help us to cherish this union that we have in him. Help us to take up the whole armor of God to fight when the evil day comes into our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.